Good morning. I'm David Fisk. I'm one of the pastors here in town. Glad that you're here with us. That's the second time I've done that. Um, yeah, I wanted to say thank you for being here with us, whether that's in person or online. So glad that y'all are here. And we are in a series called Managing Grief. Let's see if this will come up. Yep. Managing Grief. And we started last week. And as we talk about grief, we wanted to have kind of a common definition so that we're all talking about the same thing. And we define grief as an overwhelming sorrow from loss. Overwhelming sorrow from loss, okay? And how there's a hierarchy of grief, right? Like there's big ones and there's little ones. And all of us experience them in many, many different ways. You know, death being the ultimate grieving thing. Uh, but we're also talking about the loss physically or mentally, or you lose your job, or you lose relationships, or, you know, you're just dealing with the pain in the world, and it results in us oftentimes getting angry or getting depressed or very cynical, right? It's really easy for us to do because grief flips our worlds on our heads, and what I wanted to do, I want your number one takeaway is not grief, it's this. Grief is not something that you solve. Grief is something that you tend to, okay? Like you care for it. You, you are carrying it careful and caring for it. Now, after I finished my sermon last week, you came into debrief and everyone, everyone except me is like, David, what in the world are you calling it managing grief for? Why didn't you call it tending to grief? You use that definition every week. And I was like, oh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> okay, my bad. That one's on me. <laughs> so tending to grief, tending to grief. That's something that, that we learn to live alongside and not just something that we uh, want to just obliterate from our lives. We want to integrate it, not obliterate it. I stole that from somebody. Peepaw was the grandpa that you wanted to have. He was awesome. All the stereotypes of grandpas that you can think of that are good, he was that and more. He was awesome. He wasn't my grandpa. He was my wife's grandpa. And unfortunately, when he came down to the end of his life, she got the call that she needed to fly out to Arkansas and see him in the hospital and say goodbye. And I thought, what, what comfort can I offer her right now in the midst of this? Like, well, like, what kind of comfort or hope can you have? Right? Like, what kind of hope can you have when you're staring your grandfather's death in the face? What kind of hope can you have when disappointment and, you know, tears are coming and hurt and, you know, grief is going to hit you and it's going to be painful? What kind of hope can you have? Well, that's what the situation of the book of Job is for. It's for people who lack hope, who lack comfort in the midst of grief. It's people who are experiencing loss, people who are experiencing suffering. And so we're going to cover 
the whole book of Job today, all 42 chapters. Hope you all don't have afternoon plans. No, but let's um, look at Job. If you want to turn in the bulletin, there are excerpts. I'm going to paraphrase a lot. You can thank me later. Um, we're not going to cover all of it, but we will go through the whole story, okay? So starting out, just in the very beginning in the book of Job, it's describing him and talking about how he is an upright man, how he's a righteous man, he has lots of wealth, he has a big family, and he is a guy who regularly was known to fear God and turn from evil. So he feared God, was a righteous man, and turned from evil. So let's pick up in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So over the next few passages in the next few verses, Satan goes out and causes all of Job's animals to die. He causes, through various tragedies, all of Job's children to die and his family. He also um, had his wealth taken away. He goes and does all these things to Job, and yet Job did not sin. He did not sin. And Satan goes back to the throne room, he goes back to God, and he says, well, Job only worships you and only just turns from evil because you've given him good health. So he says, okay, you can take his health, you can't take his life, but you can take his health. And so uh, you see in verse, chapter 2, verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And verse 9 ends with, In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, over the next 35 chapters, you like how I skipped over 35 chapters? Just like that. Over the next 35 chapters are all these speeches between Job's friends who come and try to comfort him, him talking back to them, and then him talking to God as well. And so all these speeches are happening. And then around uh, chapter 38, Job and God have a conversation, right? Job starts talking to God, and he brings his questions. But then he goes a little too far and starts bringing his accusations. And God doesn't say, I can't talk to you anymore. I'm done with you. He engages his questions. He talks to him. He engages Job and challenges Job. What do you really understand about the world? 
what do you really have power over in the world? I mean, he gets in Job's face and is like, you know what you're talking about? No. No. And then we come down to the end of the story of Job in chapter 42. It says in verses 1 through 6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me for which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Verse 10 says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then it finishes with verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. All right, we just covered 42 chapters of the Bible. So we need to ask God to come and please bless us and be here amongst us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not been a God who uh, remains hidden or who um, treats us with um, unkindness, yet you show us grace and mercy and you have given us your word. And this morning, Lord, would you please bless the preaching of it Would you, in all of our hearts, come and work so that we might love you more, so that we might know more about you, so that we might desire you more and do more for you. We pray it for your glory. Amen. All right, well, when your world is in shambles and you're overwhelmed with sorrow when you're grieving, what's the first question that you ask? I don't know about you, but mine is, why? Why does this have to happen, right? Why do I have to suffer? Why is there suffering and grief? That's the first question. Why is there suffering and grief? Well, there's a bad answer and a good answer and an answer I'm not going to tell you yet. All right, so the bad answer, why is there suffering and grief? Job's friends come to comfort him. And they have good intentions, right? Like, they want to come and help their friend. They know that their friend has suffered. They know that their friend is grieving. And so they come and they try to offer him comfort. But what do they end up doing? They end up telling him, look, you're suffering and grieving because you've sinned. And they overestimate their wisdom, right? Like, they take all of God's wisdom and kind of truncate it down into just this little, like, well, you're suffering because you're sinning, and if you would just repent, God would be happy with you. So you see instantly that that's what they're thinking, and then you have his wife, who in chapter 2, verse 9, yells at him and says, curse God and die already. I'm sure Job's like, oh, that loving sweetheart, I I said I'd do, and I meant it. (laughs) She's like, curse God and die already. You know, and everyone, what I, want, what I want you to see is everyone has a timeline for your grief. Everyone has an expectation of what your timeline with grief should be. 
And I want you to see that a lot of times when that happens, the person feels guilt and shame because they're not done with what you want them to be done with yet. And that's not right. That's not right. So what I want you to see is Job, in chapter 21, verse 34, turns to his friends and says, How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There's nothing left of your answers but falsehood. He's like, you guys are miserable comforters. Like, oh, golly. What you say is terrible. And then God steps in in chapter 42 and says, My anger burns against you, his friends. My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken what is right. And it's like, bam. You know, like his friends get put in their place. And again, what I want you to see is that grief is not always linear. It's not that simple. It's not as simple as, well, you're sinning, and then you just repent and stop. Like, oh, you're, you're sad? Well, you're sinning. Well, you just need to repent, and it'll stop. That's not how grief works. Like we said last week, grief is linear. It's unpredictable. You don't know when it's going to come and when it's going to go. It's hard in the midst of it. And if you are someone who's grieving, I want you to understand you need to do what's best for you right now in taking care of yourself. As you tend to your grief in a God-honoring way, you need to do what you need to do to take care of yourself and show kindness to yourself. And the way that you do that, I think, in my opinion, is that you experiment. You try things, right? This is going to be a new area for you. It's going to be a hard thing for you. And so you try things. You try being with your friends. And if that's too much, then don't do it. But if you need to go be with your Bible study group, go be with your Bible study group. And if they help you, do it. Love it. Great. Go. Now, if you're trying to help someone with grief... You need to have patience. You need to have patience, you need to have kindness, and you need to have openness. Because sometimes you need to be open to tears. And sometimes you need to be open to laughing. And sometimes you need to be open to shutting up and not saying a word. So that's what you need to be. So those are bad answers to the question of why is there suffering and grief? A good answer doesn't explain everything, but it helps us make sense of what's going on. Good answer is looking at the world and realizing this is not the way that the world was supposed to be. God created it in Genesis 1 and 2, right? He created Adam and Eve as real people, right? Historical people. And then he created everything and gave them a duty, a call to take care of his creation, right? And what does humanity do? Well, they go and they betray him and shatter all of those relationships. But thankfully, God in his grace and his mercy says, I'm going to give you a savior. Genesis 3.15, I'm going to give you a savior. And you see, that's what's going on is in our lives, we have suffering and grief because the world is not so, it's not the way it's supposed to be. I know that doesn't answer all of your questions, but that's one reason 
that we see that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. That's one reason why we do suffer and grieve. Third one is the one I didn't tell you. It's a secret. The third is, well, did you notice where Job was where, when God and Satan were having that conversation? Was he in the room? Nope. What about the second time? Where was Job when Satan went in? Did he hear what they were talking about? No. Nowhere in the book does it say that Job finds out about God and Satan's arrangement. And that shows you right there that there are unrevealed reasons. We don't always know. You're not going to always know. In verse um, 6 and verse 12, he talks about how it's not there. He says, we know all these, we won't know all of these reasons for suffering and grief. And as one of my seminary professors used to tell me, you have to play the hand of cards that you've been dealt. You don't get to know why you've been dealt them. Yeah, that was you too. <laughs> you don't always know why you get dealt those. And so I thought about, like, what are some of the empty nothings that we say to each other in grief? Okay? I'm not going to, like, roll my eyes or say anything about these, how lame they are, but you'll hear it. Right? We come with these platitudes, and I think we come with good intentions. Like, we really do want to help people but we don't realize how we impact them. And we don't realize how our words impact them. And usually, your friends are going to be the people who are going to help you the most. Oftentimes, your friends are the ones that hurt you the most, too. So that's hard. Some of the things we say today, well, there's always a silver lining. Don't let Satan steal your joy. Find the gift in the situation. Well, you should be happier now that she's freed from her body. If you could stop being so, fat, so sad, you would feel her love around you. Well, you have two other children to be very thankful for. Well, this is God's plan. Y'all's love is still there. You'll move on. God gives his biggest battles to his strongest soldiers. <laughs> Don't be, sad. <laughs> Don't be sad. You'll find the one. Like, you can't say that. Everything will work out fine. Right? Like, you, you can't say that. And what I, here's what I want you to see a quote if you don't believe me. Let's, nope, not Parker Palmer. Not her either. This is the different um, sermon. All right, I'll, uh, I'll read it. It's from Tim Keller, okay? So, in thinking about these empty platitudes, this is what he says when he was given a cancer diagnosis. One of the first things I learned was that religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. A belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Did you hear that? 
That's TK, right? That's Tim Keller. He says, a belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Look, you do need community, okay? I'm saying when you're tending to your grief, you need community. You need companionship. You need people who are going to say, look, I see you, and I know what you need, and I'm not going to say anything right now. Or I'm going to go do all of these things for you right now, right? You need other people. Relationships are vital to making meaning in life and trying to integrate that loss, okay? And you have to understand that there is power in your presence. I think that's one of the things that we erroneously think is, if I go sit with somebody, I have to have all the answers. As a pastor, I'm telling you, I don't have all the answers and I go sit with people. You're not going to have all the answers but your presence there is powerful. Do we get our quotes up? Because I have another one coming. Nope. No? Okay. All right. Another one is from K.J. Ramsey, who I love. Do not underestimate the power of your presence. Do not downplay the comfort of your kindness. There are people who you will see today with wounds waiting for the salve of compassion and respect only you can give. She's saying don't underestimate the power of just being there with hurting people. Don't underestimate it. As you're tending to your grief, remember your, your goal is integration, right? And when you're helping people, your goal is not to get them to move on. Your goal is to get them to move with you and you with them, probably more so. Not to move on, move with, okay? Intending to your grief lies less in what you do and more in how you approach your own heart. Can you go to your own heart and offer kindness? Can you go and approach your own heart without shame for grieving? Can you go to your own heart and approach yourself with honor and say, this is really painful and it, really, it is really terrible? Can you take your heart to God and trust in Him? Can you take your heart to God and hope in Him? All right, so that's our first question. It's the longest, but we got two more. So the second question First question is, why is there suffering and grief? Second question is, is there meaning in loss and grief? Is there meaning in loss and grief? And as we tend to our grief, we as Christians need to remember the Christian story. Okay? When you look at Job, you see that there is a beginning, an end, beginning, middle, and end to the story. Right? And it's a story of redemption. It's a story of redemption. So Job is part of the Bible, part of human history, part of this meta-narrative that we're living. Yes, I learned that from you. Um, part of this story that we're all living in now. Right? We're part of this story. Our lives are part of the story of redemption that God is working. And he's weaving together this meaningful story that has redemption and restoration. He's weaving together this meaningful story even in the hard parts, even in the ugly parts, even in the difficult parts. 
right? It's showing you your grieving, your suffering is not in vain. It's not worthless. God can take even our hurt, even our pain, and he can weave meaning into it. He can weave meaning into it. And you see, he, he needs every part. He needs your life. He needs my life. He needs everyone's lives to tell that whole story of redemption and restoration. You think about Joseph, the story of Joseph in Genesis and Genesis 50, where he says, you know, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Or in chapter 42 of Job, where he says, no plan of yours can be thwarted. Um, so you might not know the reason for suffering, but you know that God is at work. You know God is writing a meaningful story where he is weaving in meaning, where he is weaving in redemption and restoration. And so suffering and grief, when we experience those and when we tend to our grief, it's part of this bigger story of redemption. And it gives us great meaning. And it means that you do not suffer in vain. And that's good news. Last question. Does God care about my suffering and grief? Right? Does God care? Because sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Like, my life is a just crazy show. Right? Do you care? I'm a good Presbyterian, and I know you're in control of all things and sovereign, but do you care? Well, think about Job. Think about him for a second in this situation. I mean, he really is suffering, right? I mean, think about it. He lost all his money. He lost all his animals that were money. He lost all of his family. He lost so much. He lost the respect of his wife. That's a big deal. Um, he's lost so much, right? He's lost so much. And despite the poor wisdom that his friends show him, Job holds out hope. He says in chapter 19, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. So he's holding on to that hope. But as the story goes, he's kind of drifting a little bit. A little bit. He begins to doubt and get to chapter 21, and he starts asking these questions about injustice in the world. And like, I don't know, God, I'm kind of waffling a little bit. And then he keeps going, and he takes it up a notch to where he starts to talk to God in chapter 30, and he says, God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. That sounds a lot like Psalm 88 that we talked about last week. I'm shaking his fist. You've become cruel. Can you imagine losing all of those things and how much grief he would be under? Right? Like, I don't, I don't even know how he held out hope for that long because he's an upright and righteous man. But he has to come to God and starts to accuse him of being cruel. And, what I, what I, and, and for eight chapters, he struggles with that. Okay? So when you see that is a struggle. And I think it's really easy when we are looking at grief or just in life, it's easy to do the blame game, right? Well, 
They're hurting because of that person. I'm hurting because of that person. I'm hurting because of you. You're hurting because that's just the world we live in and that's the way it is. Right? It's easy to play that blame game because it gives you a sense of control of like, I have this power because I can now pinpoint the reason. And it's like, no, that's not true either. The blame game is not helpful. And what's interesting to me is that the Lord shows Job mercy and love rather than judgment and guilt and shame. Right? He enters into Job's questions. He engages him where he's at. Okay? Despite Job's questions and doubts and accusations and ignorance, God is going, I will engage you. I will enter into what you're talking about and where you are. Now, and you think about, in Job, he's saying, I care enough about you, Job, that I will enter into your questioning. And he says to the Israelites, I care enough about you to give you the book of Job, which is the book of wisdom. And you and I are further along in the story, and he says, I care enough about you to enter the world as a man and become the ultimate sufferer, the ultimate griever. Right? It says Jesus, that he comes in, he enters into the world, a world of suffering and hurt and grief, and he comes to save humanity, and they reject him. He enters into the world, and his own friends betray him. And they're not good friends sometimes. Right? He enters into the world and ends up becoming the ultimate sufferer and experiencing the ultimate grief of being abandoned by God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus comes and does all this and experiences all this pain and this loss, and he experiences the grief of these humans rejecting him and his friends and losing the love of his Father. And so what I want you to hear is, I don't know what the answer is to your suffering, okay? But I know that the answer cannot be that, G- that God doesn't care. There are a lot of negatives in that one. <laughs> I know the answer to, does God care? It cannot be that he doesn't care. Because he enters into the world as this ultimate sufferer to save us, to one day, someday end all suffering and grief for us. And so he comes into this world and experiences all that. And at the end of the book, Job experiences a sort of, a kind of restoration. In chapter 42, at the end, he says, you know, the, the book says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And it says in verse 12, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Right? It's the restoration of his wealth, of his children, of his health. Hopefully his wife will t- be nicer. And he's, he's gotten all of this restoration. He's gotten all of these things back, but they're not in a way they're going to make him forget. I think sometimes we're scared of that. Scared to tend to our grief because we'll forget. And it's not that kind of restoration. 
It's not that kind of comfort. It's a type of restoration. It's not a full restoration. But see, we have more of the story. We have more of the Bible, obviously, than Job. And we know the end. We know the one day, someday, final restoration where God comes back to earth, Jesus comes to earth, the Holy Spirit comes and makes all things new and takes away all suffering and all pain and all grief, and it's all gone, and you won't have to tend to it anymore. I'll just finish with this. Why is there suffering and grief? Number two, why is there, is there meaning in my suffering and grief? And number three is, does God care about my suffering and grief? This is the message of Job. If you want comfort, if you want hope in the midst of your suffering and grief, then you tend to your grief by putting your hope in God. That's how you tend to your grief. D.A. Carson has this quote that I love. He says, putting your hope in God does not replace your pain. It's still real. But putting your hope in God can provide what's needed to cope and continue through your suffering. Do you hear that? I mean, you can just replace it with putting your hope in God does not replace your pain. It's still real. But putting your hope in God can provide you with what's needed to cope and continue and tend to your grief. That's how he wants us to tend to our grief. That's what the book of Job is for. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. It's easy for us to forget. Um, It's easy for us to take for granted all the things that you have done for us. And so we come with these questions, and um, we thank you that we can come with hard questions to you, and they're not something that discourage you away from us. You don't reject us. Instead, you enter in and engage. Lord, would you give us freedom to tend to our grief? Would you give us freedom to come to you however we are? Would you give us wisdom and grace and honor to treat those who are tending to their grief and help us tend their grief as well? By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do that? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.